when I was in college, I, I took a lot of writing classes, a lot of poetry classes, really mostly, and there was very much a uh, a dominant school or style, which I guess at the time I thought of as being a sort of a post-language poetry style. You might today, I guess, I think Joan Houlihan was the one who coined the term post-avant. Uh, I think she did so ironically, but then it's become more of a, <laughs> it's become a badge of honor among some people. The, the style in any case was very much uh, one that I guess from the outside, you might you might say the poems were they were short. They tended not to make sense in a in a kind of an obvious way. They they required sort of initiation in order to appreciate them. They were they were not easy to write. I mean, there was a, there was certainly a craft to them. It took practice to do this thing well that people tried very hard to do and that you know was appreciated. There was a graduate school there, the graduate students and, and undergrads. Personally, I was never very good at pulling off this style, but I was very aware of it and I very much strove to, uh, to, to meet its standards. So I, you know, I, I eventually became disillusioned uh, with with this whole approach to poetry, and got to be friends with Ryan, and, and uh, set off on a whole other pretentious journey. But before that, I you know I took a lot of these classes, and and there there came this point where I had been there long enough that I'd I'd been in a couple few of these classes. I knew the people. It was this very small department, so it was almost all the classes were the same professor, and and I kind of knew the lay of the land. I'd, I'd been around the block. I had gotten to, I developed kind of my my attempt at, my, my angle on this, this house style, and I was familiar with everyone else's, and I sort of knew, I knew the game we were playing. Which again, I, I wanna be clear, like it, there was a game we were playing, but we were trying to, you know, I think when, what I, I was reminded very much of this style, when Sam Riviere said that when he reads a poem, what he really wants is to be, he wants to be surprised in a way that, that takes him, that disorients him. He wants to know, he wants to, to say, well, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know how to approach this poem. I don't personally have that desire as a reader, at least not in quite the same way, but it was very familiar to this style, this, this uh, you know, style at the, at the college I went to, which again, for anyone who might not know, was a, uh, you know, uh, upper middle of the road, uh, uh, Southern state school. So not, um, not not by, by no means a, a significantly elite institution, but one that was certainly aiming to make up in uh, edge what it lacked in prestige. By the way, if you hear little chewing sounds or scratching sounds, that is, hey, echo, 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 baby, stop, stop, that's enough. That is uh, our adorable puppy who does not like to be left alone and who is sitting in my lap chewing on a Garth Risk Hallberg doorstop that I never got around to reading. I bring all this up because there, there, there came this moment where I was, it was the first day of this, this workshop. 
I went into class. I, I knew most of the other uh, folks in the class, and uh, we were we had. Been, I think we'd been asked to bring in a poem. It was either the first week or the second week, but it was it was early on in the semester. We had not read anyone's poems yet, and there was there was a one new kid. It was a kid I had never seen around who hadn't been in any of these classes before, and he. I remember he passed out a poem of his, and. Then he, he left the room to go to the bathroom, sort of before class had properly started. He passed his poem out and he, he left the room to go to the bathroom. I remember this because I remember reading it with him not in the room, but with uh, other classmates in the room who had been in classes with me before. That is, there was at least this brief moment when there were three or four of us in the room who had been in workshops with this particular professor at this school at this moment in time already and we were reading a poem by the student who was new to that particular milieu he had not been initiated in this specific attitude toward poetry and i, I read the poem and i had a very uh, a specific and mixed response because what I noticed immediately was that it was broken into tidy quatrains, that they were arranged in a, 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 a regular meter. I, I, if memory serves, I think it was tetrameter. And that they rhymed. They rhymed crisply, consistently. I think ABAB, maybe ABXB. And, you know, the first response I had was a smirk. I remember looking, I remember looking up at the other uh, uh, kids in the room that I, I knew from, from previous rounds of classes and, and sort of recognizing along with them that here was somebody who didn't know the game. Here was somebody who, who didn't know what was up. While we, of course, did. You know, I felt immediately uh, some scorn and as well as a sense of belonging, right? I was reminded of how much I did know. I was reminded of how inside the loop I was by this guy's outside the loopness, out of, out of touchness. I, I think I gave a kind of a sigh and whether I said anything or not, I exchanged a look with the others in the room that was a look of recognition, a look of understanding, a look of uh, maybe exasperation at this person who was, who was bringing to the room such an obviously tone deaf, out-of-step submission. And there was this other feeling I had that was buried beneath that initial sense of scorn and superiority. And that was a feeling of fear. Now, it wasn't fear because, you know, at first glance, this was a brilliant poem. I don't really remember it being particularly remarkable one way or the other. And, and what I do remember is that after a couple of weeks, this guy uh, came to Jesus. He started writing in the same, uh, certainly free verse, as well as being mostly, I mean, that was the other thing. In addition to being in, in rhyme and meter, this poem was written in very uh, uh, clear, recognizable, English, you know, grammatically consistent sentences that had a a theme one to the next, and that stated that, that that made kind of assertions that had something like a an argument or a an emotional claim 
that what the poem was attempting to do was obvious, whether or not it was successful. And that was part of what made its rhyme and its meter so embarrassing and so uh, um, worthy of scorn. But, but as I said, there was this, this other fear underneath. And, and it, you know, it was not fear that I was doing something false. I mean, again, it, it's not quite fair to say that this semi-nonsensical style that we embraced was a fraud. You know, it wasn't that I thought, oh, I know I'm doing something wrong. I mean, I really thought this was good and real and serious art. And, and maybe it was. Not what I was writing, but maybe some of what other people were writing was real. But the fear I had was a fear, a, a fear and a kind of a recognition at this skill, at the presence of this demonstrated ability in this new kid's poem to make rhymes, to set out feet in regular meter to versify. And there was a little fear, it's the same fear, you know, I, I would have kind of recognizing uh, when somebody talked about the, the, um, the divine comedy, recognizing that I knew enough about it to talk about it, sort of intelligently, but of course, at the time, I hadn't read it. <laughs> and I, I, kind of, I kind of tried to remind myself that, well, I don't really need to read it because I know enough about it. And I had a little bit of that fear, though maybe with a slightly sharper edge, when it came to meter and rhyme. I thought, well, that, I don't need to do that. I don't want to do that. There's no purpose in doing that. That's not the done thing. Nobody wants that. I don't want that. I don't like that. But also, I, I can't do that. I haven't learned how. And that's really all it was. Again, it, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't some profound existential crisis. But, you know, the, the guy got with the program and he started writing free verse poems that didn't really make sense. There was a thing called the new sentence that for a while I thought I understood. The new sentence. I, I think this is maybe, may have been a Charles Bernstein thing or a Ron Silliman thing. At some point, maybe I will try to get somebody on the podcast to, who, who feels who's qualified to talk about what the new sentence is. I've looked it up and tried to understand it dozens of times. I've had teachers explain it to me. I still don't fucking know what the new sentence is. But there was this thing called the new sentence that was supposed to replace the old sentence. Uh, that is the sentence... <laughs> we're most familiar with that involves a, a subject, a predicate, uh, and, oh, and a period at the end. What's going on, Echo? Little dogs. <laughs> All right, be still. Let's be still, baby. Let's be still. Ooh, startled me. But I bring this guy up, uh, this, this poor bastard that we corrupted <laughs> back, in, back in college, because I thought of him, and I thought you know, of this mode, this style. I thought of this style again, uh, recently, when I, I got a note from Cameron, and it was it was very smart as usual. It was in response to my conversation with Alice about Earn Malley. I got this actually. I got this a few weeks ago. I've been thinking about it and chewing on it. And the other day, I sent it to Alice to get her thoughts, and she, of course, was was both more prompt and more frank and, and in good faith with herself in her response. So I, I, I'll, I'll read it. I won't read the whole thing. It's quite a long uh, uh, note from from Cameron, but uh, he, he write, or Cameron writes that the the poem that Alice 
brought up, which is called Colloquy with John Keats. She brought it up in an episode a while back and uh, and sort of we made fun of it as being a kind of a, a self-evidently silly poem. It's funny, but maybe funny unintentionally. And it's pretty ridiculous that people would read poems like this and think, well, this is a, a significant source of poetry. And Cameron wrote to say, the poem you read out, Colloquy with John Keats, is not his finest or his most serious poem. This is he being Ern Malley, who, of course, did not exist personally, but was the, the, uh, the product of a collaboration between two other poets. But there are phrases in it, this is Cameron again, that I feel warrant more appreciation than you at first seem to give them. The emotions are not skilled workers. It's funny shoving together matters of the heart type poetry with communist cliche. But I do think something original yet appropriate arises. The emotions, after all, are not skilled workers. They can sometimes blunder. For me, that phrase does entirely fit Yeats's idea of the intellectually surprising yet appropriate word. Though overall, it is, yes, one of the more fun poems of Malley and good to read as straight-up comedy. I don't think uh, there are many phrases, many undercurrents of invention, which do seem seriously astounding to me as good poetry. And then Cameron goes on to introduce another poem by Malley to say this is a much better poem and maybe one that's sort of fairer to call up as an example in a vacuum. This is Jurer Innsbruck 1495. Jurer, presumably being Albrecht Jurer, uh, the engraver. Uh, so Durer Innsbruck 1495. This is a, a short poem. This is a, is it a sonnet? No, not quite a sonnet. 12 lines, I guess. Uh, and not, doesn't seem to have even a buried rhyme. No. All right. Durer Innsbruck 1495. This is uh, Ern Malley, uh, the non-existent, the famous non-existent Australian poet. I had often cowled in the slumbrous heavy air closed my inanimate lids to find it real, as I knew it would be. The colorful spires and painted roofs, the high snows glimpsed at the back, all reversed in the quiet reflecting waters, not knowing then that Jurer perceived it too. Now I find that once more I have shrunk to an interloper, robber of dead men's dream. I had read in books that art is not easy, but no one warned that the mind repeats in its ignorance the vision of others. I am still the black swan of trespass on alien waters. Cameron writes, isn't that a very fine poem? The beauty of it is that it can be read both ways, as a parody discussing the inherent repetitive nature of art with a subtle nod to the actual status of Mali as a parody, but also as a serious poem of artistic anxiety, where beautifully simple phrases I had read in books that art is not easy balanced perfectly with more complex poetic expressions robber of dead men's dream. And that final line is fucking terrific. Final line being, uh, I am still, uh, line break, the black swan of trespass on alien waters. How can a parody intended as a satire manage to, in some ways, uh, sum up the experience of the outsider as a person, a group, or even a nation? It could be a description of Australia itself, separated from the center of European culture and privilege, or it could be a description of Mali as a suffering individual. Uh, and Cameron goes on and makes, I think, a pretty strong and uh, persuasive case for this poem and maybe for Mally in general. And while I, 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 I have slightly different taste, I think, than Cameron and some of the lines that Cameron seems to like, I don't, I don't love, I do think this is a much better poem 
than uh, colloquy with John Keats. And I do think that there is evidence of more interest, a more interesting sense of language and maybe a more interesting perspective here. But it gave me a little bit of that feeling I had as an undergrad, or rather it reminded me of the feeling I had as an undergrad of, of reading poetry with a with a sort of a, with an eye to something slightly different than I I do now. I'll quickly read Alice's uh, response, which is which is as usual charming and and personable and wholly unpretentious. Wow, who is this guy? I was going to try to do an Australian accent, but boy, it uh, sounds a lot better in my head. Wow, who is this guy? And why does Cameron have such strong feelings on an old poetry hoax from all the way over here? Cameron's right, though. I definitely chose one of the more obviously silly Mally poems, and even in that one, the closer you look, the more you find. That's the whole point, really, and why we will never escape Mally. We can't dismiss his poems as nonsense, not completely. That sentence is telling, I think. We can't dismiss his poems as nonsense, not completely. It's hard to argue that they were intended as anything other than a joke to make a point, and probably they leave heaps of readers totally cold, but they are also weirdly compelling. We still talk about Malley, write about him, write after through him, refer to him as him over a hundred years later. Maybe we're all under a great national delusion, or maybe the two bored poets who got drunk in the Melbourne army barracks one Arvo ended up writing some pretty cool work. Arvo was apparently Australian slang for afternoon. <sighs> Barbarians. But yes, if I gave the impression that Mally's a joke poet or dismissible, I, Alice Goodman, this is uh, Cameron referred to her as Alice Goodman, which is, which is henceforth will be her name on the show. I, Alice Goodman, retract whatever statements led to this impression. Yeah, and so I mean, and this is of course the right response. <laughs> like, this is of course the correct response to uh, Cameron's uh, show of overwhelming uh, force and insight, as as uh, as is his want. I, I think though that the Alice's line about not dismissing these poems as nonsense, not completely, and Cameron's note about he says there are phrases phrases in it that I feel warrant more appreciation than you at first seem to give them. I do think something original yet appropriate arises. And then somehow in the smoke of his creation, some dormant untapped vein of greatness came flashing out from his two creators, uh, which is a, which is a lovely sort of mixed, but still I think quite effective metaphor for creativity. I think we can quite really does get at something, which seems really right. Yeah. I mean, so much of creativity is chemistry and the guys, uh, who are their names? Macaulay and Stewart, I think were their names. That's what, yeah. Okay. That's, that's, uh, Macaulay and Stewart were the two poets who made up Ern Malley and they, in their collaboration and maybe even in their disingenuousness. Yeah. They, it, it makes perfect sense that they could have uh, tapped into something that some sort of overtone could have been achieved that that you know otherwise never quite came out because the two of them were uh, apart from er the Ern Malley poems were completely uh, unremarkable in their uh, poetry careers but something came out all of that sounds true to me sounds right to me and you know when I read student poems or I read submitted poems uh, or even when I read poems by poets I really intensely dislike. It's, it's possible for me to find a line here and there that I can admire or that 
gives me the the sense of a um, some sort of powerful creative presence at work. It's just that I think where Cameron and maybe Alice and maybe my my college self and probably William Logan and lots of other smarter, better, more you know more um, refined readers detect gold. I I guess I detect spare parts. It's not that a poem has to be perfect in order for it to land for me. It's just that I guess I find it much harder to... It's more like when you're, when you're beachcombing with a metal detector and the device goes off in your hand and you're excited, you get the loud sound and you dig down and you find a bottle cap. You know, it, 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 it's evidence that something was there. It's evidence of something related to poetry. But it's so far from being the thing itself that I, I don't know what to do with it. And so, yes, I mean, as, as silly poems go, poems like Colloquy with John Keats is, is good silly poetry. It's, it's smart well-wrought silly poetry that took a a skilled hand to make and maybe even an ingenious mind to generate. But I guess I find it hard to recognize more than just potential there. And the poetry world is is full of potential. I mean, it's all potential. What is a room full of poets but a bunch of former gifted and promising children, right? I mean, a a group of kids who once were going to turn out to do or be or say something. And instead, uh, this is what happened. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think this is, there's a, there's a problem I have. It's a problem I've had with some of uh, Shane McRae's recommendations too. I, maybe I'm just, uh, I'm a little colorblind. I know broke my dad's heart when he, as a, as a, you know, as a, an architect and a painter and a, you know, art major, he realized that there was a certain level in which I would never be able to appreciate painting. And I may, maybe I'm a little bit colorblind when it comes to a certain quality in poetry. I can't, um, I just can't, it doesn't, it doesn't move me to care. It just seems to me like evidence that Unlike some, you read some poems and you say, there was never a chance. This was never close to being anything. And you read other poems and you think, the person who made this non-functional pile of words might have written a poem. It just so happens that he didn't. I don't want to beat a dead horse and I don't want to pick on anybody. It really is, I think, perhaps my own deficiency, but but that's probably all I've got to say about Ern Malley or my college undergraduate uh, poetry workshops. And uh, Echo is now asleep in my lap, so it's probably time to uh, move on and uh, and introduce this this fucking show. Oh, now you're awake. You're gonna cause trouble. Good girl. Good girl.
I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. This is going to be kind of a short uh, episode this week. First, I, I wanted to say I got some really wonderful responses to my interview with Austin Allen. Uh, I may get to some more of those later, but uh, I just wanted to start by uh, mentioning the note I got uh, back from Austin himself. Uh, it's very, very, very nice note. Um, he wanted to offer a couple of slight corrections. He wanted to, um, he, he gave the precise versions of some quotes that he gave from memory. Uh, he said, I noticed I slightly mangled a couple of things I quoted. The actual Kenneth Burke line is, one cannot advocate art as a cure for toothache without disclosing the, superi- the superiority of dentistry. Just pretty damn close to what I remember him saying. But uh, at any rate, the, um, he then goes on to say the actual Adrian Rich quote from what is found there, which uh, I guess is a nod to the Williams line that he he also quoted in that episode. Uh, the actual Adrian Rich quote is, in a history of spiritual rupture, a social compact built on fantasy and collective secrets, poetry becomes more necessary than ever. It keeps the underground aquifers flowing. It is the liquid voice that can wear through stone. Uh, so that was from Austin, and I, I have I have a couple of other notes that were sort of um, pleasantly argumentative notes. I may get to a little bit later. First, though, I <laughs> so the other day Joanne and I were taking Echo to the vet, and she um, she was putting her coat on. She reached in her pocket and she pulled out two little cartoon covered children's breathing masks, and she uttered this this sort of mind-blowing sentence. She said, with, a, with a, an inflection of surprise, she said, two masks I have. And, uh, and it, it immediately, it just like lodged like an arrow in my brain. And it, it sent me to a line that I could not for the life of me place. The line was, two loves I have, and then I, I pieced together, it was two loves I have of something and despair. And I couldn't figure out what the missing word was. I couldn't figure out where the fuck it came from. Two loves I have of murmur and despair. Of course, it would have been much better. It would have been a better anecdote if she had said two gloves I have, but such is life. Uh, by the way, when I find, it was, you know, finding a couple of children's masks in your in your coat pocket as a parent is totally it's totally normal. I mean, the, the only difference is that when I find if when I find a forgotten object, a, a, a child paraphernalia in my pocket, it tends to be a uh, a half-eaten string cheese stick. So she was she she came out all right. Anyway, I had this line in my head, and I, and I and then I finally figured out what it was when I found the sonnet in the news. So. Uh, the, this it's it's from it's the first line of Shakespeare's sonnet 144. The line is two loves I have of comfort and despair. Pretty good line, but this particular sonnet was in the news a few weeks ago. I'm slow, slow to get the news, but um, it's hard to get the news from poetry. Uh, difficult to get the news from poetry. Um, so I was, I was slow to get the news, but this is this is a really particularly stupid. Uh, poetry news story in a in a week of or in in a month of some stupid poetry news there was so a brand uh, aptly named smile makers has released a new clitoral stimulator called the poet 
this is, by the way, the second most expensive model that they put out. The most expensive is called the Ballerina. What seems to distinguish the Poet as a as a vibrator is that it uh, it 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 blows hot air uh, through a a sequence of interchangeable rubber mouths, which seems you know maybe not totally inappropriate to its to its name. Uh, I have uh, no um, yeah I can't comment on the quality of the product, but I I think this is maybe one more symptom of a a trend that I. I have, I have strong suspicions about that outside of specifically poetry circles, the word poet and po the word poetry will be used more often figuratively than literally. Uh, though, I, of course, I wish everyone who makes use of the poet thorough satisfaction. <laughs> There's one other, I guess not dumb poetry news story, but sort of slightly frustrating poetry news story. Um, so uh, Maya Angelou is going to be the first black woman to appear on a U.S. quarter. That's how the news was presented. There are, I know Harriet, Harriet Tubman is uh, slated to appear on the new $20 bill, which is a, which is a pretty good improvement over uh, the author of The Trail of Tears, <laughs> among other things. Uh, Andrew Jackson, and on the new version of the $5 bill, Marian Anderson, the singer, and Martin Luther King are supposed to appear on the back. I believe I read somewhere that Duke Ellington is on a coin somewhere for some state or in some circumstances, but uh, Maya, Maya Angelou is the first black woman to appear on a quarter, uh, maybe on a coin. Well, no, I think there, I think there may be another was there a Sojourner Truth coin? Am I? I looked up a lot of obscure denominations of currency for this story because what I wanted to confirm is that this is great. I think wonderful. I mean, the, 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 I'll say the portrait of her isn't especially recognizable as Maya Angelou. It's it's pretty broad and vague, and uh, it's almost a like a, a, an icon. It looks it's sort of like it's a, it's like slightly more. Um, specifically human as a figure than like Matisse's Icarus. It's like, but in that ballpark. But anyway, that's fine. It's a uh, um, it's good for her to be represented on a coin on U.S. currency. Uh, good. I just also wanted to note that that what um, what the U.S. meant in their note on her totally left out was that she was a poet, and that she is as a result the first poet to appear on any denomination of U.S. currency. I'm pretty sure. I mean really the first writer, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Daniel Webster, a number of sort of political writer figures have appeared on currency, but I mean, no novelists that I, that I could find, uh, an inventor or two, but mostly stuffy old politicians. So uh, I'm all for, you know, if we're going to be uh, questioning the appearance of morally compromised politicians from uh, previous centuries on our currency, I say it's it's time we start questioning the presence of morally compromised artists on our currency as well. So I am um, I'm, I'm glad for Maya Angelou to appear on a quarter and I hope she's the first of, of many. Not that, and, and I'll get to this later 
in some of the responses to my conversation with Austin, not that it will do a whole lot to make any poet's life particularly better, but it doesn't hurt. So the biggest and the dumbest poetry news story is uh, the one I mentioned about Shakespearean or about Shakespeare sonnets. So <laughs> the I'll just read the beginning of the uh, Brain Dead Daily Mail article. Uh, this is by Imogen Horton for the Daily Mail, 5th of January, 2022. The head of one of Britain's top universities has criticized Sir Patrick Stewart after he refused to read some of Shakespeare's sonnets because of, in quotes, political correctness. The actor 81 skipped several poems about the bard's dark lady and one referring to a woman colored ill during his recitation of a sonnet a day for online videos during the first COVID lockdown. So Patrick Stewart, when uh, Taika Waititi was doing his uh, uh, James and the Giant Peach readings with various celebrities and, and other people were coming up with uh, sort of impromptu low budget entertainment for all of our bored children and dying cabin feverish brains. Uh, Patrick Stewart's contribution was to release a series of recordings of Shakespeare sonnets, which is great, which is lovely, and um, and what who who uh, better to do it? But in the process, he notably skipped, I believe it's six of them. He didn't. He read all of them. The all. 154 except for these six. It was Sonnet 66, Sonnet 131, Sonnet 133, Sonnet 134, Sonnet 135, Sonnet, Sonnet 136, and Sonnet 144. Six, seven, seven. I was wrong. So he said that he he skipped these um, because he doesn't, he, he, said, he said, you know, it, uh, variously that he either didn't like them or he couldn't understand them or he didn't he didn't like the message of them. Uh, so this um, very silly uh, woman, Sally Mapstone, Professor Sally Mapstone of St. Andrews, uh, reason, the reason this is the news now is she recently made a statement about why this, she says, I didn't think he was right to skip a couple of the uh, sonnets, a couple being seven in this case, in a rather politically correct way, frankly. I think he should have just read them and let people make up their minds. But as he said, it was his choice. So there's been some predictable fussing back and forth about whether uh, this was right or wrong or was politically correct or wasn't politically correct. And I I want to step in 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 defense of uh, Sir, Sir Patrick Stewart, but maybe in um, in a slightly different way because I think you know reading back through these sonnets, I think he I think he was mostly trying to be politically correct, but he he actually failed. I think one thirty five, which is. Uh, which is just an insufferable series of puns on Shakespeare's own name. I think. I think when he said he doesn't like some of these, I think yeah, that one is not one to like. That's that one's pretty bad. Uh, and 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 one thirty four is a completely uh, inscrutable and convoluted uh, metaphor based in contract law. Uh, oh God, no, he's got two of these. Two of these will pun poems. So yeah, two poems. Two of the sonnets, not even all of the sonnets, in which Shakespeare uh, made lots of uh, plays on word on his own name. So, uh, yeah, I mean, a couple of these are definitely poems not to like, and uh, at least at least one other of them is pretty confusing. I will say. Um, I also don't, you know, I don't think 
these are the best of the poems, but you know, if if Shakespeare, I mean, if if he were just skipping the bad ones, then it's crazy that he read all the others because there's so many other bad ones. I've said it before, and, and but I, I stand by it. 44, 45, and 46, dog shit, terrible, terrible sonnets. Uh, but he read all those, and um, and then more to the point, the 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 kind of the two lines that have been most quoted as being politically incorrect and therefore uh, worthy of his omission are from 66 and 144, which are also the two best of these sonnets. So um, I, I just wanted to, to make a note about these because I think in both cases, if he was trying to be politically correct, which I think I think probably he sort of was, I don't think in a like a, a devious way, I think in a trying to be a nice guy and play ball kind of way. And I just think, I think he was just wrong. <laughs> so in 66, the line that is quoted as being uh, uh, un, unfeminist or, or, or not suitable for a contemporary audience is the line, uh, maiden virtue rudely strumpeted, which sounds, uh, sounds like something one would not want to say now, but if you read the actual fucking poem, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's ridiculous to object to the presence of these words in this poem, because what Shakespeare is saying is presumably what any one of us today would say about this situation. He says, tired with all these for restful death I cry as to behold, desert a beggar born and, and needy nothing trimmed in jollity and purest faith unhappily forsworn and gilded honor shamefully misplaced and maiden virtues rudely strumpeted and right perfection wrongfully disgraced and strength by limping sway disabled and art made tongue-tied by authority and folly doctor-like controlling skill, and simple truth miscalled simplicity, and captive good attending captain ill, tired with all these, from these I would be gone. Sorry, tired with all these, from these would I be gone, save that to die, I leave my love alone. It's sort of a, a little bit of a flaccid couplet there at the end, kind of a limping conclusion, but the the um, the litany of wrongs is a has some juice to it, has some momentum to it, and of course, what Shakespeare is listing that he is tired with is a series of injustices, is a series of uh, of mismatches as to behold desert a beggar born. That is someone who is deserving of much born into poverty versus needy nothing trimmed in jollity. And the lack of desert, someone who doesn't deserve anything, uh, uh, brimming over with, uh, well supplied with, uh, everything that he does not in fact need or warrant maiden virtue rudely strumpeted that's that's someone who has behaved chastely being called unchaste and right perfection wrongfully disgraced that's uh, goodness being called badness so this is this is these are mismatches this is what um, what one might call uh, you know slut shaming now maybe the difference today is that we would say that it's not just maiden virtue that should not be rudely strumpeted but you know all you know even you know uh, unmaidenly uh, lack of chastity uh, should not be rudely trumpeted either and that's fine but it's hard to argue with the objection that shakespeare makes in itself uh, and i think it's just the presence of those words that made sir patrick a little queasy the best of these poems is uh, the last one sonnet 144 the one i uh, that came to mind when 
Joanna found those masks in her pocket, two loves I have of comfort and despair, which like two spirits do suggest me still, the better angel is a man right fair, the worser spirit a woman colored ill, to win me soon to hell my female evil, tempteth my better angel from my side, and would corrupt my saint to be a devil, wooing his purity with her foul pride, and whether that my angel be turned fiend, Suspect I may, yet not directly tell, but being both from me, both to each friend, I guess one angel in another's hell. Yet this shall I ne'er know but live in doubt, till my bad angel fire my good one out. So the line in here that people objected to was, the worser spirit a woman colored ill. And these are, um, this is from a sequence that are sometimes called the Dark Lady Sonnets, and the suggestion was that this might be a woman of uh, African or North African descent and her her color her darker coloring it would be considered a strong symbolic analog for for evil or badness whereas the man right fair is pale as well as beautiful and this is um this is this is the strong contrast between beauty and goodness uh, and and pallor versus uh, darkness and evil and ugliness on the other hand and to the extent to which that might be the case it's quite understandable how people might object to it. Of course, if that is in fact uh, objectionable, then you know any Renaissance poet who used the word fair as a double entendre or triple entendre would be just as objectionable. And in this case, it's actually not even what Shakespeare's saying. I mean, setting aside the question of uh, whether the woman was or wasn't of you know was 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 either it was a you know a North African descent or was uh, simply a European brunette. Uh, setting that question aside, this same woman from this same sequence, he in fact praises as being very beautiful. You know, he, he's certainly not saying she's ugly. The colored ill, if that is objectionable, it is certainly far less objectionable than the discussion of appearance that, that's present in Sonnet 130, which he did quote in full, in which I would say he quoted in full because it's famous. This is, of course, my mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, by, by why then her breasts are done? If hairs be wires, black wires are, grow on her head. I gotta look it up now just to make sure I'm not losing it, not missing it. Um, I have seen roses damasked red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. Did I get that right? Yeah. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go, my mistress, when she walks treads on the ground. And yet by heaven I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. This is a famous poem, and it's famous for good reason, because it's very good. It's It really holds up all together rather than just in passages, which is which is you know tends to be... When, when Shakespeare doesn't land it quite right, often there's a lot there that's pretty good. It just doesn't all sit four square in quite the way that it does in the best of them. But in this poem, we, I think, think of this poem as being fairly innocent because he's ultimately praising his mistress after seeming to insult her. But the way he insults her for the, for at least the first six lines is by insulting her coloring. He, he doesn't even say she's ugly. He just says she's dark. My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. Her lips are not red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done? Her skin is a, a dusky, light brown color. 
If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. Now, we today sort of uh, laugh at the comparison of hair to wires because that doesn't sound very pleasant to any of us. But of course, wires were not the wires we think of today at that time. Wire was comes from, I believe, it's an old English word for uh, work, to work metal. And so worked metal, this was uh, gold that had been hammered and worked and bent into shape. He's saying other poets might compare their mistress' hair to wires. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. So the only thing wrong with her hair is not that it's wiry, but that it's black. I have seen roses damasked red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. Of course, the damasking, that patchy pale uh, white and pale pink that has been, you know, that might be compared to roses, that's uh, only present in very, very pale white European uh, complexions. So, you know, the first six lines, really all he's saying here is, you know, my, my mistress, who's, you know, these are, these are, these are um, comparisons that are lined up next to, the next one is that her, her breath stinks, right? So that, you know, that, that is the series of comparisons. If this is not, if this poem has any ironic tension, the whole uh, spring of this poem depends on his insulting her before he finally redeems her by saying, uh, actually, all these other guys are lying about their women, and she's uh, just as beautiful as any of them. But if it has any ironic tension, if it has any spring at all, if it has any any power as a mousetrap, just the mechanics of the sonnet, then we have to understand those six lines as being an insult. And all he's really saying in those lines is that her hair and her skin coloring, her eye coloring, her lip coloring are darker than a very pale Northern European complexion. That's all he's really saying. And so if a woman colored ill, which is really just a a rhetorical contrast to the play on words uh, inherent in the word fair that appears in the previous line, if that one line, uh, the worser spirit a woman colored ill, if that is uh, objectionable, then good God almighty 130 is objectionable. Of course, I tend to think this way of reading uh, literature, especially literature from centuries ago, is a really limited and uh, unrewarding way to read it. But the reason I want to come to Patrick Stewart's defense here is that, yeah, sure, he didn't understand some of the poems. He didn't like some of the poems. I don't like some of these poems. And sure, he read plenty of other very bad poems. And sure, he was probably trying to be kind of politically correct. And I think he basically uh, failed in his t- in his effort to be woke uh, in his selection of Shakespeare sonnets. But, and this is where uh, Mary, um, Mary, what's her name? Sally Mapstone, silly Sally Mapstone, is just completely off base. She's asking him to make to, to make to be a sort of an aesthetic uh, purist and not to allow politics to muddle his choices in his you know selection of in this in the selection of uh, 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 poems that he that he reads. This is this is again. I think this is the same mistake that people make when they interview athletes and ask them about the game. Because Patrick Stewart, God love him. I mean, as a kid, I I, I watched uh, Star Trek: The New Generation with my dad. He's terrific on there. He's he was uh, performing with the Royal Shakespeare Company back when uh, Sir Ian McKellen was 
a like a sexy little little elf, little child elf. Um, he's a he's a legend. Patrick Stewart's amazing. I mean, the man looks like a king. He sounds like a god. He's a terrific actor. But, but I think I think Patrick Stewart is a great actor in the mold of Sir Lawrence Olivier, who also just looked divine. You you just seeing him on screen, it's breathtaking. But as soon as he starts talking backstage, as soon as you try to read his memoir, he's he's a silly goose. I think I think many of the greatest and I, you know I love actors. I, I certainly don't want to say here that all actors are dumb. But I will say that many great actors are dumb, or are just sort of empty. I, I really I really think that, that there's something to being a kind of a, a hollow vessel that often can make one a great actor. And I think Patrick Stewart is basically a, a hot, dumb guy with a great voice. And God bless him. And he's fantastic for just that reason. He's, he's exactly uh, who you want him to be. Uh, you know, cast him, give him lines to read, put a costume on him, and he's fantastic. And I think like a you know like a, a a top level athlete i don't really want to hear his opinion that's okay if he gives it i just think it's it's unfair to take it seriously you know i think let him be the hot dumb guy who in addition to you know being jean-luc picard in addition to being professor x uh and appearing in uh, a stage adaptation of waiting for godot some 10 years ago uh that was you know widely uh, praised and you know having having performed you know on on television on movie screens and on stage for uh, decades and decades and decades, you know he's the guy who uh, also narrated both TED movies about the talking teddy bear. I think he he also uh, he also led the star-studded flop Christmas Eve which I never heard of until I looked up his film, his uh, filmography. He also appeared in Bambi 2. Not Bambi 1, Bambi 2. So, you know, like a lot of uh, hot, dumb guys, he's also a little slutty. And God bless him. That's great. I'm all for it. And I'm all for him reading Shakespeare's sonnets. I think... <laughs> So I just saw this one. In the Emoji movie, he played Poop. Just, you know, I'm, I don't mean to speak ill of him. I didn't see that one. Maybe that's a great one. Maybe Poop is a great role. I'm just saying he's a hot, dumb guy. And that's exactly what we want him to be. And that's okay. And just, it's unfair to take him to task for his opinions or his attempt to read. Because like most hot, dumb sluts, he's not very good at reading either. He's good at delivering lines and that's that's what you want there are very few actors who are really good at reading uh, you can often tell from their uh, from their choices they tend to be the ones who who are in even if they have a bit part even if it's a lowbrow movie you you watch it and the script is pretty good here's a tip I'll say Zoe Kazan uh, not my favorite actress not uh, the most famous actress um, not the, the most traditionally beautiful actress. Good reader. If she's in a movie, chances are it's actually a pretty well-written movie. 
She will often have a teeny tiny part in it, but she's a good reader. Either that or her manager is. In any case, God bless Patrick Stewart. God bless all hot dumb sluts. And, uh, you know, it's okay that Shakespeare had a lot of sonnets that were not that great. And it's also okay that uh, that some of the lines rub us the wrong way now. That's, that's fine. But Sally Mapstone, leave Patrick Stewart alone. And Daily Mail, shut the fuck up. All right, so I did want to talk about a couple of other emails I got um, in response to uh, Austin's appearance and various things I said on that and on some previous podcasts. So I got a short one from Jonathan Farmer and a long one from, I got a lot of really nice ones and, and thank you to everybody who wrote. Uh, most of them were just sort of, just nice, nice, you know, uh, um, sort of sort of long form thumbs up. Uh, these two were a little more quarrelsome, uh, politely quarrelsome. So I want to address them specifically. So Jonathan wrote a short email and Coleman wrote a long email, both making similar arguments. I'll read Jonathan's first, just because it is very concise. He says, I think your claim that poetry can't be a tool for political action is historically and culturally contingent. There have been times when and places where poetry was a popular art form. And in those cases, it could be a meaningful tool for activism. I think it's even true that in some US communities at certain moments, activist poetry has helped rally folks toward political action. That seems probably pretty right. Well, all right. I think there have been times when and places where poetry was a popular art form. Yes, of course, definitely, no question there. And in those cases, it could be a meaningful tool for activism. I wanna, I wanna dog ear that claim, because there's another, there's another aspect to it that I think is worth addressing. I think it's even true that in some U.S. communities at certain moments, activist poetry has helped rally folks toward political action. Maybe. Maybe, though maybe not in the way Jonathan intends. So then I got a really long, I mean, really quite long email from from Coleman, uh, which is really eloquent and, and wonderfully thought through and makes me think that Coleman is probably a pretty good giver of sermons. I don't know what do you, I don't know what you call it for, for Protestant ministers or I don't know if he's a priest or a minister or a pastor or what, but, but um, whatever they give when they talk, uh, up at the front of the church. For Catholics, it's a homily. But Coleman has kids, so he's not a celibate priest. Well, anyway, if he gives sermons, they're probably pretty fucking good based on based on this letter in particular. He's, he's always had always has good emails, but this one's really, really strong. I, I maybe, maybe I'll find, if it's okay with him, maybe I'll find a way to share the text of this because it's worth reading. I'm just not gonna read the whole thing on uh, on Mike. But here, I'll, I'll, read, I'll read a little excerpt from it because he, he's, he says so many really smart things. He says, I'm almost as cynical as you about the ability of page poetry to make any difference in the world whatsoever because no one reads it. And as you've mentioned, when poetry sets out to challenge and disrupt, it rarely does because the audience that the poet wants to disrupt definitely doesn't care what the poet says. Disruptive poetry might strengthen the passion of people already in the movement, but it's a terrible way to try to appeal to people outside the movement. And I, I think he's totally right there. Uh, I just think that maybe um, 
he puts disruptive in safety quotes. Maybe movement should also be in safety quotes because I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know. You know, I think, I think I'm skeptical of poetry. I'm skeptical of political movements that are heavily aligned with poetry, and I, I, I want to see. Uh, results for those movements. So for contemporary poetry, the power is almost always in strengthening what people in the in-group already think. All right, so he goes on to say, however, but it does do this. That is, uh, poetry does strengthen what people in the in-group already think. You know, even if it is only preaching to the choir, you know, preaching to the choir makes the choir more devout, I suppose. You know, preaching to, to the choir is not the same as preaching to nobody. It does do this, and some of the poetry that does it most successfully is insta-poetry. I don't like most of the insta-poetry I've read, but I don't think the people who claim to like it are lying to themselves or to anyone else. I, I agree. I don't. I think that's, that's true. I think that there's little prestige to gain in pretending to like insta-poetry. I think people who say they like it generally do. And judging by book sales, they seem to like it even when it's divorced from the context of social media. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe... Or maybe buying it is is part of the experience of being immersed in the the social media feed. I don't know. I'm not totally sold. As, you know, I think that's I think it's a, it's a that's a reasonable inference, but I don't think it's a rock solid one. Um, he he quotes some Rupi Kaur poems um, in a very generous and thoughtful way. People value Insta poetry for its resonance with their own experience. What I think these poems are doing is functioning as scripture, sermon, and hymn simultaneously for a sort of secular religion that has no sacred text but is embraced by millions of Americans. A commitment to self-care, independence, feminism, emotional vulnerability, etc. For what they are, the poems are very effective. And that um, that comparison to scripture does make some sense because I think, of course, of the the various recitations that uh, occur in church or in, in, ma in mass at least. They're things that people would say over and over again, sometimes the same lines every week. Um, you know, Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us, and so forth. And as well as the prayers, of course, one repeats verbatim week after week. And then there are certain lines from scripture that are uh, read out and repeated that may not be exactly the same week to week, but are also but are, but are very familiar, right? They're, they're very, very seldom in church or in mass at least is there a reading from a sacred text that is a surprise to anyone right sometimes the interpretation will be a surprise sometimes the juxtaposition will be a surprise sometimes there are lines people forgot about but mostly people sort of know what's coming and yet repeating these lines to a congregation is not doing nothing it is reinforcing something it is strengthening something uh, I, I I acknowledge that, and I think while insta poetry might make for a kind of thin soup as religions go, I don't think that's nothing. Um, and I also will say I have little as I like insta poetry. I have more respect for that as as activist poetry, so to speak, than I do for politically aggressive page poetry. There was in um, in some essay or review I wrote a while ago, I cited this this really moving little video that showed up online uh, during uh, Occupy Wall Street, and it was a, a video, a little little you know handheld video somebody took of Jeff Mangum, the reclusive 
lead singer um, and really sort of genius behind the Neutral Milk Hotel and their particular in particular their their one really beloved enormous album in the airplane over the sea. He just showed up at Occupy Wall Street one week. People were camped out. They were pretty physically miserable for a lot of that time. They were just sort of having to grin and bear it and stick it out to try to make some difference. Granted, you know, maybe they didn't make a difference, uh, though I, I, I'm not sure that's totally the case, um, even if in the immediate short term they were they were driven out of the park. Uh, but he showed up with a guitar and just took took requests. Just played songs. They, these being a bunch of you know a bunch of um, you know twenty something hipsters at the time. You know, and he was exactly who they wanted to hear from, right? This they, he was a huge uh, hit. He showed up and he just he just took requests. The songs he played were not political songs. They were weird, sort of Christian, sort of incestuous, and Frank obsessed, uh, mournful love ballads and surreal you know panoramas. But they were. They sounded great, and they brought people good cheer. They kept people company. They made it a little bit easier to stick it out a little bit longer in the big occupation, in the protest. And in that sense, they were really effective political songs. So when poetry, when art brings comfort to people in this way, and I think that's some of what Coleman's talking about, some of what Jonathan's talking about, I I'm I totally believe that 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 is a meaningful use of art as a political tool. And beyond that, I also agree absolutely there are books, there are poems people read that uh, that change something for them. They read a line, read an image, you know, find an image, read a story, discover a character and it sticks and it turns some turns some lever in the heart. Right? Can art change people in this way? Absolutely, without question. Can some of those changes have political consequences? Of course, of course. But and you know my my really strong I think two part objection to self consciously political art is this, and particularly poetry because you know that's what I know best. But particularly poetry, particularly literature. But art in general, I would say, objection one, even if art can keep people company, can can soothe and reinforce the choir, can can even inspire some change, it very, very seldom does so as the result of the author's planning. That is... Yeah, if you want to play some hits to keep the kids warm, that's great. But that's not the song itself, right? The reason people, the reason the song works that way is that people already like it. They already connect with it. Not because the song says, fuck Wall Street, eat the rich, but because the song says some bizarro shit about a a piano on fire. Poems that are written with the express purpose of converting people or of rallying people uh, of of moving people to action tend not to work. I mean, I can't think of a time I've read a poem and thought, well, I know that the author wants me to be moved in this direction. And it also moved me in that direction. I can't think of it. And I read a lot of fucking poetry. 
I mean, is it only for people? I'm not that smart either. I mean, I'm, I'm smart enough. But like among people who really devote their lives to poetry, you know, I'm somewhere in the, the middle. So if it only works on really dumb people, I don't know. I'm not sure that's all that effective. Uh, I also don't think it, you know, I think it's hard even to write a propagandistic children's book, right? Like it's hard to write a children's, children's books all have lessons. Not many of them have strong effects. I mean, Daniel Tiger, uh, Brian makes a strong case for Daniel Tiger in a conversation I'm going to release, <laughs> but uh, that's a different, that's a different story, I guess. But I think the second objection I have is that let's say, let's even allowing that you could write a message into your poem and you could teach that message to your reader. I think in doing that, you actually give up the better thing that poetry can do. Or rather, you give up the thing that poetry can do that an essay can't do that a political speech can't do, right? The, the, if you know ahead of time what your poem means, and if you're gonna propagandize, right? If you're gonna instruct people, you better know what it means. What you're saying when you teach a lesson in a poem is you're saying, I know something that you don't know, and I want to teach it to you. Let's assume you can do that in a poem, which I think is a very doubtful assumption. If you choose to do that, then you are giving up the other thing you can do in a poem, which is discover something at the same time as your reader, which is write a poem that does not totally add up to a simple message, but maybe has something else to it. That is perhaps worth reading more than once. That's, you know, I think that's really my objection. Uh, I read poems that are clearly meant to teach a lesson, and I think uh, you failed. And then if I hear poets who are good poets say, I want to write poetry that makes a difference. I want to write poetry that moves people to political action. What I want to say to them is even if you could do that, please don't because I want to read your good poems. I want to read your best poems. And if a poem of yours is really going to move people it's probably not going to be in a way that you foresaw. It's probably going to be the same reason that most people are moved by most things, which is unpredictable. And if you're going to try to move people, if you're going to try to get people to take up uh, a political cause, then why not just do that? There are essays, there are speeches, there are op-eds, right? There are fucking podcasts. If you have an agenda, if you want to affect people, then why not tell them that? Why, uh, why fuck up poetry along the way? I guess that's sort of my objection. Now, there is another question that, that Coleman talks a little bit about and that, that came up. Jonathan interviewed me recently for this, uh, this publication called On the Seawall. He interviewed me for that. And in our conversation, we talked a little bit about this problem. I do have a, this, this, I am really uncertain about this. It's something Coleman brings up a little bit. Um, he, he says at the very end, 
of his note. He says, you've speculated about why religious folks like your podcast. I think it's partly because you clearly have a sense of how religion functions in society and how art and religion intersect in a way that people who were raised in secular backgrounds often do not. That's part of it for me anyway. Mostly though, I like it because it's a heck of a lot of fun to listen to. That that's and uh, I'm glad to hear that. Glad to, <laughs> glad to hear all of that because that's the uh, the goal. Even if this has been uh, an annoying and hectoring episode, I do wonder about a a sort of an ontological split because when I read religious poetry, very often, not always, but very often, I find myself impressed by the craft impressed by uh, some of the images and observations, but then I often feel let down when the sort of the curtain of the poem is pulled back, when the, the, the trap is sprung and the result is uh, God. There's, there's, the result is at the end of uh, the death of Ivan Illich, uh, but everything's okay because, uh, because Jesus will save us. I find that disappointing. And I know that uh, some religious readers, smart, thoughtful religious readers, I, I, some friends of mine, some family of mine, find uh, really bleak poetry similarly disappointing. They find it to be sentimental or self-indulgent to say, oh, well, there's, you know, there's really no hope. There's really just emptiness out there. Uh, whereas I find those poems often comforting because I know they're not trying to pull anything over on me. Um, so I don't know. I think there's a real problem there. I don't have a solution to it, but it's something I want to think about some more. And um, in the meantime, I, I, I got the new issue of 32 Poems. I actually got back-to-back -back the new Sewanee Review and the new 32 Poems. Uh, I will say, I should say, I know the editors of both of them, or at least the poetry editor. I know um, David Clark, uh, as well as Michael Shoemaker, I think, who's now doing 32 Poems. I know Michael Shoemaker hated my review of his book, but no hard feelings on this end. Michael, I have lots of respect for you as a poet and an editor. Uh, and I know Eric Smith, who's the poetry editor of the Swanee Review. Um, both of these are fine magazines. I'll just say, you know, Eric, if you're wondering why I haven't found uh, as many poems in the Swanee Review as I have in 32 Poems, uh, it's got to be because um, 32 Poems contains 32 poems. And in uh, in in the span of, uh, let's, just, let's just double check this. Uh, 32 Poems contains 32 poems in the span of 38 uh, pages, all told, whereas Swanee Review in an issue that is 190 plus pages, uh, Swanee Review contains four poems. So uh, I know that's not, you know, you're, you're, prob you're probably not budgeting pages for poems, but I'll just say maybe if you publish more poems, I would find more poems in there. But for now, I did find a poem by... Um, an old classmate of mine, Stephen Campa, and I was intrigued by this poem, partly because Stephen is, as I think I've said here before, uh, just one of the most formally dexterous and tightly controlled poets uh, working today. And he's a, he is a typically a, a, a formal poet who is in 
supreme masterly control of his lines and is so crisp and is such a nat natural rhymer and feels it seems so effortless when he performs these extraordinary acts of acrobatics in his poems that when I sit down to try to write a 12-line poem in rhyming quatrains and I find myself hitting my head on the desk after you know two and a half lines I just think of Stephen and I want to shoot myself so part of what intrigued me about this poem is that it's in free verse Unless I'm missing a, a subtle, yeah, I don't think I'm missing a syllabic scheme here. It could be. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't scanned every line, but it seems to be free verse. It's a, it, it, it seems, it feels, it sort of makes fun of itself for being kind of sloppy or being sort of um, whimsical, and because it's a religious poem, but one that doesn't seem to rely as much on faith to supply the oomph of the ending that even as an atheist reading it i find it touching i don't think it's his best work but i think it's it's pretty good i and i kind of like it i'm just going to read it real quickly um it, it's called campa's guide to flowers which tells you right away that it's a silly poem and it is campa's guide to flowers by stephen campa if it looks like a child drew it it is probably a tulip unless it is obviously a daisy. If it looks like a cartoonist drew it, it is definitely a daffodil, often wrongly called a buttercup. If it looks like an impressionist painted it, it could be a dahlia, hydrangea, chrysanthemum, or common thistle, something extravagantly vague and ornate. If it looks like an apology, it better be a rose, and if it is not a rose but is given as an apology, it looks like trouble. If it looks like nobody would bother to draw or paint it, it is probably God's handiwork. And whatever name we give it, that low-lying yellow number, the weedy nondescript ragamuffin, one of a thousand permutations of, of a disc and ray floret sudanthium, that is almost certainly not its name. Its true name. Its secret name. The name God alone gives it. Flower by flower, across centuries of forgettable fields. I quite like that. I think I think if there's if there's one little moment that rings slightly false to to um to return to, to my conversation with Austin, it might be that uh, if it is not a rose but is given as an apology, it looks like trouble. Maybe just because it feels a little cute. It feels a little like in a in a an almost uh, agonizingly ingenuous poem that uh, that feels maybe a little bit like a dad joke but part of what I like about the appearance of God in this poem is that he's off stage and he doesn't offer any he doesn't seem especially concerned with us right now or at least not directly maybe one thinks of the lilies of the field but he's he's certainly not coming down from heaven or dying for our sins He's just working on the flowers and giving them names that aren't especially for us. One of my rules of thumb for supernatural events in fiction, or, or well, I'll say at least for magical realism. For magical realism, the, the big rule is you can have wild magical things happen and you can have lots of wild magical things happen and you can have big wild magical things happen. But what you can't do is have them solve our problems, right? They don't always have to make things worse, but they can't make everything better. 
Why? Because that's not how we experience it, right? And for those of us who do, for those of us who do have our problem solved magically, well, maybe we don't need the poems as much. We don't need the stories as much. But in any case, um, God doesn't solve any of our problems here, but he does He does provide some extraordinary scenery. Whatever name we give it, that low-lying yellow number, the weedy nondescript ragamuffin, one of a thousand permutations of a disc and ray floret pseudanthium, that is almost certainly not its name, its true name, its secret name. The name God alone gives it alone, flower by flower, across centuries of forgettable fields. Is that a typo, I wonder? The name God alone gives it alone. I think that might be an error. Anyway, you know, not a perfect poem, but uh, one I'm glad I read. I enjoyed it. There are a few others I dog-eared in this um, issue. Maybe I'll come back to. And um, and I read the ones in Swanee too, Eric, and I liked them okay. But uh, print more. Print more poems, Swanee Review. So I think I'll call it there. Do check out the the mostly Matthew-free Twitter account, at Slee Ricketts on Twitter. Uh, thank you all for listening. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Yeah.